independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Especially in the age of the internet, you know, people search and find, oh, it's this for that kind of herbal medicine without that cultural framework. And so with my husband, who's a filmmaker, we produced a film, Newman, to really celebrate the values at the heart of herbal medicine to show that it's more than a product on a shelf. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to holistic healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. This is a community-backed show. That's what allows us to be unfiltered and really go into every territory possible with such a diverse range of topics. So if you find our work valuable, you can support us at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We are hoping to reach our next Patreon goal as soon as possible to be able to continue on with our next season beyond episode 300. And if every person listening to this who has just two bucks to spare chipped in, I'm sure we would get there in no time. So thank you so much for your support, whether through joining our Patreon, if you can, or otherwise sharing the episodes you love and leaving us a five-star review in the podcast app. Today's episode features Anne Armbrecht, a writer and anthropologist whose work explores the relationships between humans and Earth, most recently through her work with plants, herbal medicine, and the botanical industry. Her latest book is The Business of Botanicals, which poses really interesting questions that we'll explore today, such as, can the health benefits of medicinal herbs be preserved when production expands to an industrial scale? And what do we lose when people begin to see herbalism as simply products to be traded for in a transactional way through the act of purchasing, rather than about embodying the holistic sets of values and relationships that it's really rooted in, and so much more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. So I'm an anthropologist by training, and I studied English in college, but right after college, I went to... Nepal to work in Tibetan refugee communities teaching English. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to write a history of the resettlement of Tibetan refugees in Nepal, which is what I'd wanted to do originally, not necessarily write the history of Tibetan refugees, but to find something to write about because I was interested in writing. But as I did that research, I became interested in what I would have done if I knew what I was doing, if I had some training in anthropology. And so that really led me to graduate school in anthropology to get the tools to, to really understand other ways of knowing and you know, in, a, in a beyond superficial way, more than superficial way. And also, I wanted to get back to the Himalayas. And so for graduate work, I went to Eastern Nepal and I was interested in doing research that in my mind made a difference that had some practical 
impact or some made some difference in people's lives. And so I picked an area that had been declared a national park and biosphere reserve. So it was a the idea, this was in the late 80s, early 90s, was to really not exclude people from conservation areas. This was an era when people were being excluded and kicked out to protect the land. And this was a different model where it was really building on indigenous culture and systems of land tenure and really working with those communities to, the idea was to sort of protect the land and develop so-called sustainable resource models. So I did, I picked an that area to do my research. And I was looking at the relationship that villagers had with the land. And so that involved like talking to shamans about the oral tradition, as well as a lot of work on land tenure and the history of land rights and things like that. And it was not so much about this biosphere reserve, but I had a lot of assumptions about indigenous ways of knowing being somehow better than our own which of course I just quickly discovered it's far more complicated than that. But what I did find was there at the heart of the villagers, I was in a village called Tadangna in the upper Arun Valley in Northeastern Nepal, that the villagers had a, a relationship with the land that was different than what I had grown up with. It was seeing it in more of a relationship of reciprocity, not an extractive model, it was definitely using the resources, but in exchange for making offerings to the ancestors. And so I was struck by that. And I was struck by the sense that the earth was alive and an entity with which to have a relationship. And also the sense of spirit and the sacred at the heart of that relationship. And so I really, those values, I really took them in. And when I came home, you know, like so many other people, when you come back to the United States, I had severe culture shock. And in that time, I discovered herbal medicine. I went to an herb conference and that Rosemary Gladstar organized the Northeast Women's Herbal Conference. And what struck me there was some of that essence that I experienced and discovered in Nepal was also present in how herbalists talked about working with the plants and plant medicine. For the sake of discussions on medicines, I feel this need to give a disclaimer to our listener that we aren't here to provide medical advice, the standard message to accompany this sort of content, that instead we should consult our physicians first with any medical needs. And I might get backlash for even questioning that, but I do question why we've deeply taken on this concept of credibility that's rooted in a system that values certain sets of knowledge more than others, mostly based on the institutions and monetary resources behind the research that has been done. But that may not always accurately reflect the truth in terms of what can best support our healing. So I guess I would just be curious to hear your thoughts on what our society deems credible in regards to information on healing versus the reality of maybe the more holistic forms of healing that we might yearn for when we fall ill. I think I want to approach it in one way and then maybe if there are pieces I don't get at. So one thing I agree with you, I don't really want to get a lot into like the regulatory, you know, that domain about what is medicine or not, because I'm also wary of treading in places that I'll get in trouble. But after attending the herb conference, I became interested in studying herbal medicine 
more deeply. And so I took an apprenticeship with Rosemary Gladstar in Northeastern Vermont. And at first I did that thinking I wanted to become a practitioner of herbal medicine. But as I learned more, I, I realized that what interested me was this particular way of knowing that was talking about healing as something more than a product on a shelf. Mm. It was really a set of relationships with the earth and with ourselves. It treated the whole person. It looked at the whole emotion, you know, body, mind, soul as a cause of illness, and then body, mind, soul as part of what was needed to heal. And in the way I was taught, you know, the, the, the relationship with an herbalist really took all that into account. It was really individual based, not, you know, echinacea for every instance of a cold, but really catered to the constitution of the individual. But then as I looked at the reality of herbal medicine, it, it was a product on a shelf, especially in the age of the internet, you know, people search and find, oh, it's this for that kind of herbal medicine without that cultural framework. And so with my husband, who's a filmmaker, we produced a film, Newman, to really celebrate the values at the heart of herbal medicine, to show that it's more than a product on a shelf. Mm. And as we showed the film around the country and I, I spoke with people, what struck me was there was a real disconnect between how the film was received. Herbalists loved it because it resonated with and kind of captured everything that mattered to them about herbal medicine. People who weren't herbalists, it was interesting, but it didn't speak in that same way because to them, herbal medicine was a product on a shelf. And like I would speak with people who, mothers and fathers who would only feed their children organic food and would, you know, shop as much as possible at local farm markets, didn't think twice about buying, you know, Advil or cold medicine off a pharmacy shelf for their kids. They didn't ask the same questions about where the products came from, how they were produced, what the chemicals were, what the effect was. It was much more a product to deliver certain results, mm. which to me seems like the antithesis of that holistic idea of that I think herbal medicine offers. Right. So the power of plant and herbal medicine has been largely shoved to the side as an quote unquote alternative way of healing. And this is kind of ironic because a lot of pharmaceutical drugs actually come from plants. They just have an added layer of patents, branding, corporate control, as well as of course their differing ways of processing and packaging the medicinal properties. I'm wondering if you have any insights as to how something so integral to our healing throughout our entire human history has become so fringe and often is discredited by the dominant culture. Yeah, that's such a good question, right? So in my book, The Business of Botanicals, there's I didn't dive into this a lot, but there's a chapter where I'm talking about, it's quite clear in the history of medicines in the United States, how plant medicines in the early 1920s and 30s, end of the 1800s, they were, everybody knew it. Everybody used plant medicines. That's how mothers cared for their children with feverview and yarrow and plants they could grow in their own garden and people needed that knowledge to keep their family well and then companies also produced liquid extracts lloyd brothers is a, a family 
business based in Cincinnati, Ohio, that was one of the preeminent manufacturers of liquid extracts. And they are part of the eclectic tradition. And, and then there was a whole active trade of botanicals that went through Appalachia. And that all kind of died out with the rise of biomedicine. And that's been written about extensively by numerous different authors. Paul Starr, The Social Life of Medicine, I think it is, is a really good historical account of that. But it died out in our tradition in the Western biomedicine in ways that it didn't through much of the world. You know, Ayurveda, Tibetan, Tsoharikpa, Chinese medicine, systems of healing in Africa, you know, these rich traditions that can be traced back through texts that are based on this idea that in nature is healing. We lost that connection in mostly Western biomedicine, and, you know, as it expressed in the United States. Mm. I also wonder if this is partly because of the financial influences. So big pharma can invest a lot of money running trials and research on their drugs and then make a lot of money selling patented drugs with this centralized system. So there may be disproportionate amounts of research dollars going into these spaces as compared to just the herbal medicines themselves that can't really be patented, centralized and controlled. But as a result may just be what we need maybe to support the decentralization of healthcare. So not to say that modern Western medicine has no value, but just to say that maybe we haven't given equal weight to these forms of decentralized herbal medicines. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, American Botanical Council, the organization that, so I'm the director of the Sustainable Herbs Program, which is part of this American Botanical Council. And the American Botanical Council came about in the 1970s and 80s, I think the 1980s, when the herbal herb industry was really booming again. And Mark Blumenthal created it really to bring that scientific rigor to botanicals. And he did that by, there's so much research that has happened in Europe that just wasn't making it into the conversation in the United States. And so he's dedicated much of his life to really translating that material and sharing it to show there is rigor in the clinical studies that have been done. So that's one part of it. But then the other is also what you're saying is the decentralization of medicine. You know, when I started studying herbal medicine, the thing that I found most powerful was how powerful it was to make this medicine myself. What I found was how powerful it was to be able to create remedies that I could give my children when they were sick, you know, different tea, I could make steep nettle tea overnight as a way to just it felt to me improve their overall health or chamomile tea bags on their eyes when with, you know, a, a sty, simple, simple things that don't require a lot of money or fancy knowledge that seem, you know, kitchen medicine, what feels like our, what we all should know just as simple ways to take care of ourselves. And perhaps also your act of, creating these remedies for your loved ones and nourishing your relationships in that way, I'm sure that act of love and care is inherently healing for you on a personal level as well. Exactly. And it gives me something to do, right? Rather than just be frantically dependent on some expert doctor or some medicine I have to buy, it's it's inherently empowering. 
And that's really what so led me on this journey of following herbs through the supply chain, because there's this inherent empowering aspect to studying and practicing herbal medicine. And yet then herbalists recommend products on a shelf to their clients, in part because that's where they're meeting their clients where they are. And this is, you know, if somebody comes in with a certain condition, and so they want to ease those symptoms. And so they're given a product. But I was just curious, okay, what is lost when herbal medicine just becomes a product? And what might be regained by understanding the stories of the people and places behind that product? So becoming holistic in that way that I talked about at the beginning. So as you mentioned earlier, you had co-produced Newman, which is the first feature-length documentary celebrating the healing power of plants that also calls for a reawakening of traditional knowledge about plants and their uses. Indigenous plant knowledge, of course, emerged from place and very specific eco-regions. So that very much has the cultural context that may be left out today. I'm not sure if there's any way of knowing this, but I wonder about the possibility of indigenous herbal medicines being well-suited, for example, for infections and diseases that also emerge from those places because of the relationships and co-evolution that would have occurred between the plants and the microbiology within a specific landscape. I don't know if you've had a chance to think about this or have anything that you're able to shine light on. Well, it's a really interesting question. And actually lately I've been trying to find if there's research around specifically that the mycorrhiza, you know, how the plant, the quality of the soil and the constituents in the plant. And there is not that much done already that, that has been done. There are some studies that are that companies that are investing in regenerative agriculture practices that are beginning to begin trials where they com- they'll measure and compare the constituents. So, so I, there could be anecdotal information on that, that I'm not aware of. But I did want to back up and say one thing. So one thing that drew me to studying traditional Western herbal medicine in the beginning was that those values that I talked about, you know, a sense of reciprocity and respect and a sense of the sacred, I was intrigued to find those in my own cultural tradition rather than going to study another cultural, you know, the whole power and political dynamics of cultural appropriation and things like that. And so I was drawn to Western herbal medicine for those reasons. I thought, oh, here's my own tradition in my own backyard. You know, in in researching the business of botanicals, I talk about this, but, you know, it's Western herbalism, in fact, as herbalists are now talking about, there's a lot of cultural appropriation that has taken place and kind of borrowing traditions and not always acknowledging the source of those traditions. And there's 
a little bit of that cultural reconciliation happening now. But at the time, yeah, I was just intrigued by, okay, can we as growing up in a Western framework also, what does it take to have these different values and to interact with the landscape in a different way that's not driven by capitalism? So in your new book, The Business of Botanicals, you say that the industrialization of herbal medicines may contradict their very values. So beyond the limited way of looking at herbal medicines as just a product on a shelf that is problematic, what are some other points of concern we should know regarding the modern business and industry of herbs, including its colonial foundations? So one thing that I have found in the botanical industry is there's this, in the media especially, it's driven by this real drive to paint things in very black and white terms. Herbs are either a panacea and they're the cause of all healing or they're poison or so they're really dangerous or they're nothing. There's all sorts of claims about they're either all good or all bad. And in fact, it's so much more complicated than that. And it totally depends on, on the quality of the product, which depends on the quality of how it's handled each step of the way from how it's grown or harvested to how it's stored, to how it's transported, to how it's extracted. And all of that is what I think goes into the industrialization and the questions we should be asking and the concerns we should be thinking about. And scale is a big part of that. And people I spoke with, you know, scale can be good or bad. If you're a small scale, don't have much money, always cutting corners, could be you're cutting corners in terms of really making sure the herbs are clean. Clean meaning there's no cigarette butts or newspaper parts in the raw material. Or it could mean that you can bring that quality of attention to cleaning the herb, making sure it's harvested correctly at the right time when the constituents at their highest level. So, so what I found is that there's no simple answer about what makes an herb or an herbal product good or bad. Like it's not that all, all big ones are bad and all small are good, but it's really the quality of attention that is brought to each step of the way. Mm. And a related question that you ask is, can the health benefits of medicinal herbs be preserved when production expands to an industrial scale and maybe when the same attention and quality isn't put into the cultivation and processing of herbal medicines. What conclusions did you come to here, given that I, I would assume it would be very hard to find research showing the differences here? Like you said, it's hard to pinpoint one thing as good or bad. Well, there are companies with rigorous quality control measures that go that go far beyond what the US government requires by the FDA. These are companies that will really test to make sure that the constituents they're claiming are on the label are actually in the label and that, that there are no things in the product that they claim aren't in the product, like heavy metals or pesticide residue, you know, that all of that has been checked and double checked. And so you can definitely find products like that. The problem is for a consumer, it can be really hard to, to know which companies 
bring that level of rigor and attention and those that don't. And everybody has always asked me like, oh, what, com- what product do I buy? What product do I buy? And, and there are companies, you know, like the companies I talk about, those are a place to start or the, the supporters for the sustainable herbs program are also, you know, they're high quality companies that are really paying attention to both the quality of the raw material and the finished product, as well as the ecosystem and the environment and the social welfare of the people involved. But I also think it, it's, I mean, I wrote the book to encourage everyone to kind of go beyond just wanting to be told by this and really figure out what questions matter to each of us and ask the companies and find the companies that, you know, engage, get more engaged in the process of buying the product. Because I think, as you said before, that engagement is part of the healing because then we're more connected to the whole process and not just the product. So what sorts of questions would you invite our listeners to ask as they're uh, beginning to engage with this field themselves? If consumers or herbalists want to know if a company's paying attention, right? If paying attention is a really key part of determining the quality, then you just ask them questions. Like some of the questions, ask where the herbs come from and ask how they know where those herbs come from. Because a lot of companies actually buy through ingredient suppliers or they buy through contract manufacturers and they don't know where those herbs come from or they're all mixed together. And so just to ask companies that, other questions, to me, organic certification is kind of a no brainer. It's like a basic foundation. If you are taking these herbal products grown from the natural world for health, it makes no sense to take products that have been grown in ways that have been shown to be linked to some of the illnesses people are taking herbs in the first place to heal. And so while organic isn't perfect, it's a start, especially certified organic cultivated plants. For wild harvested, it gets more complicated. It's probably more complicated than I should go into for now. But I think organic is a good start um, because it means a company's committed to farming practices that have been shown to not just be better for the earth, but also for the, the workers so that the workers aren't covered in pesticides while they're producing a product that we're going to use for our health. I mean, overall, we're at a time when so much healing is needed. Our earth self, our ecosystems, climate and nutrient cycles, our communities, and of course, our own bodily selves. So I'm curious, what role do you see herbalism playing in being able to aid our collective healing? So I started this project and I wrote this book because I believe that the herb industry has a, it's like poised to be a real leader in showing us how we can live in right relationship with the environment, you know, and that's a big ask. And a, but I feel like there's the seeds in herbal medicine from the traditions around the world about reciprocity. You know, Robin Kimmerer, who's talking about the honorable harvest. So, starting there with how am I interacting with this plant, and then expanding out from that place. But that begins with your own relationship with a plant, buying a plant, putting it in your windowsill, 
taking fewer products, but the ones that you do choose, make sure they're really high quality grown. If you're not growing the plant and making the medicine, that it's a company that's really invested in healing the earth and healing the communities where they're working. And they're not gonna be perfect. No company's perfect. And the ones that say they are, are lying. They know they're lying. Nobody's perfect. So the idea is really to see who's committed to making a difference. And there are companies out there that are, that are really investing in regenerative practices, that are investing in say sourcing fair wild to make sure wild plants aren't being over harvested. And so I feel like scaling back what we're purchasing and consuming, beginning with growing more ourselves, learning those practices ourselves, and then investigating and finding the companies we believe in who are helping so that our money, you know, when we're buying a product, it's the same as donating to a cause we believe in. And so it's worth really making sure the companies we buy from are investing in causes we believe in. And overall, I just want to say that I think it's really powerful that you stress this form of healing is not just about products on a shelf, but really about healing relationships. So I think that's a really important takeaway from this conversation. And finally, before we wrap up our discussion, I'd love for you to share whatever else you feel called to share that I didn't get to ask you about and your suggested actions for our listeners to incorporate the values and takeaways from this conversation into their own lives. You know, as you said, there's so many problems in the world right now. And there's also this desire, I see it in myself, to, I want the answer. I want to know what can I do to make things okay. And I think what I learned at the end of writing this book was that like going on that journey created the healing for me that I maybe came to herbal medicine too in the first place. You know, Rosemary Gladstar talks about how echinacea can connect us with the soil of America, you know, that plants are much bigger than just their constituents. And what I said about looking for answers that are easy. And I think what I learned from this is that there aren't any easy answers. And something Joseph Brinkman said, who is a real leader in the work of bringing sustainability into the botanical industry. He says he advises to companies who ask what to do. He says, pick a plant and follow that plant to the source and, and see what arises and see what needs to be done when you get there. And then he said, I assure you, there'll be something that needs to be done. And then when you finish that, do the next thing, you know, see what else needs to be done and then do that. And he, he then paused and said, it, it's not easy, but if you're curious, you're not looking for easy. Don't come stay with it If the sun don't shine Pray for it This life was meant for growing Give it love and watch it grow Learn to be proud of the seed you sow Take the time To listen to the trees Oh give it love and watch it grow Learn to be proud of the seed you sow Take the time to the sand, to the trees These are the lessons the garden taught me These are the lessons the garden taught me
What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been very profound for you? A book that's been profound for me is by Anne Pancake, Strange as This Weather Has Been. It's a book about mountaintop removal in West Virginia, which is where I'm from, but she tells it is fiction through the voices of the characters themselves. And what what moves me so much in this book is how, I mean, it's, it's hard to talk about complicated things like mountaintop removal, and she does it in such a powerful, non-dogmatic way through story, through character, through the beauty of language. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? I don't know if I say have personal mottos every morning. I really light a candle and I express gratitude and I say a prayer. Um, I say a lot of prayers for my children, but, and, and those are more directed prayers, like that they stay well, but also just to stay open to the beauty of the world, that I listen, that I do my part, like that I carry my peace. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? So I graduated from college in the 80s, and it was when everybody was going to Wall Street, and it was super easy to be really cynical about everything, about politics and business and law, and to not engage. And what gives me hope now is that we all see that we have to be engaged, that it depends on each of us stepping forward and actually seeing the, the power of that in um, some of the election results where people who really got out and did the work on the ground were able to make a difference. So that gives me hope. Well, Green Dreamer, you can learn more and find Anne's book, The Business of Botanicals, on her website at www.annarmbrecht.com, as well as learn more about her Sustainable Herbs Program at sustainableherbsprogram.org. And we appreciate you so much. Thank you for joining us today and sharing your expertise with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Keep dreaming. Green Dreamer, we've come full circle here. We are gearing up now to begin working on our next season of the show as this current one will end with episode 300, which is a huge milestone and we're so proud and grateful to have had you along on this ride. That said, we really need to meet our Patreon goal, our next Patreon goal to be able to continue this show. So if you can afford to spare some change starting at just $2, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash green dreamer or make a one-time contribution at greendreamer.com slash paypal. Remaining mostly supported directly by listeners like you is how we're able to cover such a wide range of topics and never feel the need to self-censor when we talk about corporate powers because we're not interested in working with them or building relationships with corporations. We are actually interested in critiquing them and being able to be as unfiltered, unapologetic, and truthful as we can be in service of providing diverse perspectives for you. So I do really want to thank all of our past and current supporters for helping make this show up to this point possible. And again, if you can, patreon.com slash green dreamer. If you're struggling financially, I know it's a difficult time for so many people. Please do not worry at all. Please take care of yourself and your loved ones first. And you can also support us a lot by sharing this episode that you're listening to with your friends and leaving us a five-star review in the podcast app. Anyhow, today's intermission song featured was A Garden Taught Me by Leah Keen. 
Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you in the next episode.